Farmers are the heartbeat of rural America. Congress recently invested $20 billion in America's farmers and ranchers, focusing on conservation practices and profits for future generations. Today, these funds are at risk. You're squawking over $20 billion. That USDA program, it's investment into the future for everybody. If the funding was eliminated, it could hurt farms and families. Tell Congress, protect this generational investment in the Farm Bill. Learn more at investinourland.org. Paid for by Invest in Our Land. I have had to preside over too many funerals this year of persons who have died from COVID-19. And I've stood over grave sites and left after performing the ceremony. And I just cried bitter tears because it was just so unfair. They did not have to die. And, you know, I, I have to be honest with you. I just asked God, you know, what's up? You do you uh, why don't you intervene here? Uh, your people who love you and serve you, you know, are dying the most from this and you you ain't going to show up. What's up with you? This is Nerdcast. I'm Maya King. And so, you know, that may be heretical for a lot of people who may listen to this. But I just really I mean, if Jesus can say, my God, why have you forsaken me? I can say, God, what the hell is going on? This is a big moment for political leaders, community leaders, spiritual leaders. Hey, Maya, how you doing? And sometimes one person embodies all three. Uh, I'm Frederick Douglass Haynes III. I'm the senior pastor of Friendship West. Friendship West Baptist Church. That's a mega church in Dallas, Texas, and it has over 12,000 members. I uh, must confess that it's in my DNA. Uh, my grandfather, Frederick Douglass Haynes Sr., uh, pastor at Third Baptist Church in San Francisco. I wanted to talk to him because his work combines the spiritual, political, and communal. Dr. Haynes, you've been in the ministry for four decades, since 1979. Since 1979 and pastoring uh, Friendship West since 1983. He's not just a staple in his community, but on a national scale. Ahead of the Georgia runoff elections, the Black church has been, once again, thrust into the spotlight both as an organizing force for voters and a point of contention for some conservatives. How does Dr. Haynes see the role of the Black church in 2020? It's social service. It's that underground railroad station that is a refuge for people, that serves people. At the same time, we're trying to dismantle systems of oppression, no matter what they look like. Friendship West Baptist Church is in Dallas, Texas, specifically. We're in the midst of uh, Oak Cliff. In the neighborhood of Oak Cliff. That's our hood. And you've worked and continue to work on changing policy to help your community. I take that so seriously that that is what we've tried to do at Friendship West. Which brings me. Again. Both of us. Back to the historic role. That's the history of the black church. Of the black church. We've never divorced the spiritual from the social. In policy and politics. When you think Harriet Tubman. Harriet Tubman was an AME Zion minister of the gospel. From Harriet Tubman to Martin Luther King Jr. To Martin Luther King Jr. Think of Frederick Douglass. Frederick Douglass, AME Zion minister. You got Raphael Warnock. And right now in Georgia, Raphael Warnock, a pastor and politician who was a contemporary of Dr. Haynes, is in a runoff for a Senate seat. He's been the senior pastor of Ebenezer Baptist Church in Atlanta since 2005, a post that Martin Luther King Jr. once held. 
Now we are about three weeks out from the runoff elections in Georgia, and we know that Reverend Warnock has really been the subject of the attack ads in the state. Raphael Warnock. The radicals radical. And the main thrust of these attack ads really focus on his work as a pastor and have taken right. small snippets of his sermons. Warnock attacks our police. Somebody's got to open up the jails. To use against him and have tried to paint his tradition, his religious tradition, as dangerous. dangerous for America. Or as something right. to be feared, as something, you know, abnormal or, or something just to run away from. As a faith leader in the Black church, um, in a tradition very similar to Reverend Warnock's. How do you process these attacks? What they're doing with Reverend Warnock reflects a fear-based approach to politics. They're trying to make him a boogeyman, and they're trying to attack what he does because it is different. They're trying to otherize his religious tradition. No wonder he defended this. Not God bless America, God America. And I'll be honest with you, as irresponsible and devoid of integrity as it is, it's at the same time consistent. Why? Because you're talking about a tradition that they are used to. And I'm talking about a white church tradition that in too many instances has been in bed with an empire when it has engaged in oppression. And so they're used to an empire-informed religion like the Southern Baptists, for example, uh, who on one level, don't forget, they divorced themselves from a denomination during enslavement because they wanted to hold on to their slaves. And then it comes full circle in the worst way because last week, you know, their institutions, their academic institutions came out denouncing critical race theory. So, their religion has never been a religion that sided with oppressed people, that, that understood uh, what Reverend Warnock is talking about when he says he's a Matthew, Matthew 25, 25 Christian. Christian. That's what I am. I, I was hungry and you fed me. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was sick and you visited me. Love your neighbor. And for me, that means you don't get rid of your neighbor's health care, particularly in the middle of a pandemic. Greg. May I respond? This is Senator Leffler and Reverend Warnock in a recent well, debate. I'm not going to be lectured by someone that uses the Bible to justify abortion, to attack our men and women in the military. I guess I'm simply trying to say, if that's what dangerous looks like, that's what Jesus looked like. So when you talk about a black church tradition, you're talking about a black church tradition that has been otherized, that has been marginalized, even invisibilized. And so as a consequence, when you hear a Raphael Warnock, what they don't get is you also hear Harriet Tubman. You also hear Frederick Douglass. You hear Sojourner Truth. You hear Martin Luther King Jr. So if he wasn't doing that, then he would be betraying the tradition that has given so much to making him who he has become. Mm. Thank you for explaining that. That's I think it's important context. And it's something that you're very familiar with as well. Um, your church has a Black Lives Matter banner on its front. Um, you've made it very clear where you stand in your ministry. And I've been thinking a lot more about that. Even this past weekend in Washington, Metropolitan right. AME had their Black Lives Matter banner burned downtown. Right. Um, right. You know, how are you processing 
just where the black church finds itself in this year? And do you perceive an increased threat to black churches in this time of, of heightened racial division? Right. Well, of course, there is going to be a hostility uh, aimed at the black church due to the fact that even though the black church, as we're seeing with Raphael Warnock, is being otherized and dangerized and weaponized. I mean, the bottom line is that it's being treated such because there are those who recognize the strength and the power of the black church witness when the black church is being who the black church has always been. And so it's really to be expected of recognizing that that is unfortunately the season that we are in because the black church is going to be seen as a threat to an empire especially when the black church is standing against systemic injustice, racism in its many manifestations. So it's not to be something that we're surprised by. At the same time, it's something that, you know, is heartbreaking. And I might add, and you didn't ask me this, uh, but I have yet to hear from one white evangelical. Paula White ain't said a word. Angels are being dispatched right now. By the way, Paula White is a preacher and televangelist. And White became chair of the Evangelical Advisory Board in Donald Trump's administration. She calls up African angels. Maybe she ought to say something about what happened to Metropolitan and Asbury uh, since she's so determined that African angels angels have even dispatched from Africa right now come and help her undo what the democratic process has revealed in this past election. Have you had any run-ins this year with this kind of conflict? I know there was um, a situation earlier this year with a back the blue rally that, of course, you didn't call for, but chose your your parking lot as a as a site. Have there been any other situations like that? Or just can you talk to us a little bit about how you and, and Friendship West have really had to maybe increase protection this year? Right. Yeah. Well, needless to say, uh, in the aftermath of the back the blue rally, there were, you know, heightened threats uh, that came our way. Uh, ironically, I was invited to speak for the Black Caucus of the Democratic Party on the Sunday evening prior to the convention and delivered a message. And that message was taken by a Fox News person. We want to begin this evening by bringing you a moment of prayer. Tucker Carlson, he played it on his show. A pastor called Frederick Haynes took the microphone. As you listen to this, compare it to what you might hear in your own church. And then, a la Raphael Warnock, he took clips uh, from my message that I had delivered that Sunday evening. America, if you don't get your act together, you can, you may well go to hell. To hell! Vote for Biden, doom sinners, or you're going to hell. Despite what you may have heard, it is the Democratic Party that is the hotbed of religious extremism these days. Pastor Go to Hell Haynes, for example, is a fan of Minister Louis Farrakhan. These are men of faith, just not your faith. And when I tell you the next thing I know, I was the recipient of so much hate mail. I'm not talking about snail mail and emails. And so we did have to upgrade security at the church. I want to also say this. This for me is the most beautiful thing. And that is in the aftermath of all of that, that Sunday when the Back the Blue rally decided that they would masquerade as Back the Blue, 
uh, when in reality we saw Trump signs and a Nazi swastika sign, Confederate sign, a flag, I should say. So it's really a white supremacist rally disguised as back the blue, uh, even though all in the rally were not down with that. I hasten to say that because I received a number of messages from persons apologizing. But one of the things that was most interesting was that the community, and when I'm talking about the community, the streets, they rushed to the church as soon as social media revealed what was going on. And when the streets got to the church, I'm telling you, the brothers from the streets, they let me know. They said, Pastor Ains, let me just tell you right now, uh, I may not go to church, but uh, I benefit from your work and I call you my pastor. And so please understand uh, you ain't asking for this. We don't need DPD. We're going to patrol your church and we're going to patrol your house. And to this day, and you will see them just driving along in front of the church. Every now and then they pass my house, say, what's up, pastor? Just let you know we out here. And so, yeah, we've had threats. I mean, the threats have come like crazy, but it's been a thing. Folk ain't messing with us because of the fact that the streets said we're not going to let you come for our sanctuary that has always been down for our streets. And what you just described is something that's just so quintessential um, and and just key to the black church experience. Even even for me growing up in a black church, the community, spirituality and politics all coming yeah. together in a way that really makes sense. Um, so let's let's get back to that, actually talking about. A summer of protests against systemic racism. We've talked about this as well, and you mentioned earlier the work that Friendship West has done to move policy. Wanted to ask you a little bit more about that, um, just in the way that the Black church has been present in a number of demonstrations and in the community, but its influence specifically on the Black Lives Matter movement seems to be absent or, or watered down in this year. Is that what you perceive, and, and how do you think the role of the Black church in, in activism might have changed this year? There is a relationship between the black church and Black Lives Matter. We may not uh, be at the front when it comes to leading the marches. In many instances, uh, I'll say in Dallas, they won't allow me to go to a march and rally and not come up front because they have respect for uh, what we do. And and let me just say this. Uh, one of the things that makes me proudest is that many of those in Black Lives Matter, they claim membership at Friendship West. Uh, not only that, but uh, one of the sisters says, you know, I don't go to Friendship West right now, but I got radicalized at Friendship West. I can't tell you how happy that makes me to hear someone say they grew up in our church and got radicalized. And so the work they're doing right now is because they got radicalized in a church. That's what the black church is about. I think the Black Lives Matter movement is a continuation of the civil rights movement. It's, it's, the, it's the civil rights movement that has been morphed and you have those from the streets who may not necessarily go to church every Sunday, but you can't tell me that they're not spiritual. Their spirituality is expressed in their fight for justice.
I listened to an interview with you from a few weeks ago where you talked about a White House meeting in 2016, I believe, that got you uninvited from the White House Christmas party when you talked to Barack Obama about coming to Minneapolis and going to Baton Rouge before stopping in Dallas. Um, was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about that and and just, yeah, like kind of how that how that shook out for you. Yeah, that, that was a trip. Uh, up until then, I mean, every year I got invited to all the White House Christmas parties, a lot of the socials. I mean, it was it was just a regular thing. And then you recall this week, it was a horrible week. Another tough week in Dallas. In Dallas. The community is preparing for the funerals of the five fallen police officers. We had five police officers who were shot and killed by a sniper during a Black Lives Matter rally and march. And it was a powerful experience. And during this same week in Minneapolis, St. Paul, a brother gets shot on video and his girl is in the front seat, child in the back seat. And and that happens. And then in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, a brother gets shot. And so both of them get shot. This is all going on at the same time. And they're planning the memorial service for these five officers And so that Sunday, I get up in the pulpit and I just made the statement. I said, Mr. President, I hear you coming to Dallas uh, to offer healing words at uh, this uh, memorial service. I love you. I respect you. I've stood with you. I've supported you. But before you come to Dallas, make sure you go to Minneapolis, St. Paul. Make sure you go to Baton Rouge, Louisiana uh, before you get to Dallas. Well, that somehow made the news and The next thing I know, I'm sitting up because I want to be fair. I'm sitting up in the memorial service where Barack Obama is speaking here in Dallas and my phone rings and I'm afraid to answer it, but I could tell it's from the White House. And so, you know, I went ghetto, answered the phone in the memorial service and they said, uh, the president wants you at a meeting tomorrow. Can you make it to discuss police reform? I said, I'll be there. And so I was invited to that meeting, and I will say this, the president, uh, when he came into the meeting, he made a beeline to me, and he said, if I were to uh, go to Minneapolis or Baton Rouge, it would appear that I'm tilting the scales of justice, and so legally, it was not a good look for me to go to Minneapolis or to go to Baton Rouge. And then when the meeting started, he made that statement again, looking straight at me. After the meeting is over, I go up to speak to him. That's the first thing he says. And so uh, we have conversation because needless to say, I don't agree uh, with his position. And uh, next thing I know, uh, Christmas comes and I'm saying, oh, I guess I ain't invited this time. That That's how that went down. We cannot ever afford to get so caught up in a personality that's in power that we not lift up principles of justice because regardless of who is mayor, governor, or president, they're presiding over a system of white supremacy that is as old as the birth of this country. Even now, I mean, I'm glad we have a a sister from Howard who is vice president. I love her. Uh, have known her for quite some time. Uh, but at the same time, uh, I cannot in good conscience 
not push this administration to dismantle what Biden called systemic racism. Don't just talk about it. You got to be about it. And when you are about it, you pass policies. You use the weight of your office to address systemic racism. I know he said he's on our side. He's going to have our back. We define what having our back looks like. What issues do you want to see um, the Biden-Harris administration really tackle most immediately? And what role can faith communities play in making, you know, pushing this administration on making sure that they do make good on these promises? One of the things that has not been discussed a lot uh, during COVID-19 is that a part of the comorbidities that uh, exist in black and brown communities has everything to do with environmental racism. And so I know that the Biden administration, one of their first priorities will be to get back with the Paris Climate Accord. I'm asking that the administration go deeper in that climate accord and not just call for uh, what we need to address climate change, but let's specifically look at how climate change is not only brought on by the emissions that go into the air, but sadly, they target communities of color. Criminal justice reform that that addresses policing, that addresses uh, cash bail reform, that addresses sentencing reform because there's something wrong with the system. We are not going to bridge the wealth gap in this country that will take 255 years for us to bridge if white folk don't get any more money between now and 255 years unless there is an investment of resources in those communities that have a history rooted in enslavement. You are not going to end that wicked immoral wealth gap unless there is some kind of repairing of those communities reparations. And so those are just some of the things that we need that should be done. There are a few more I could give you, but I know the interview is not going to last into eternity. <laughs> what what do you think politicians are really missing about about what people need and what gets you, you know, the most frustrated about them? The fact that poverty continues to rise and yet the poor have been invisibilized. Uh America, great America, leads the world in COVID-19 cases and we lead the world in deaths. And it has a lot to do with the fact that most of those who have died have not have access to the same kind of health care that Donald Trump and, and, and his mayor had access to when they contracted covid And poor people don't have access to that and they live in impoverished conditions and yet they work hard. They're called essential, but treated as as expendable. That's frustrating for me. And yet that's exactly what politicians don't get. And they don't get that what Martin King fought for, died for was raising the economic floor, because when you raise the economic floor, the whole house is better. But as long as the floor and the basement is contaminated, the sad reality is the house will never be secure. Then the sad reality is our politics, I'm sorry, is whack. (laughs) Thank you, Dr. Haynes, for taking the time today. Really, really appreciate it. Thank you, Maya King. You keep up the great work. (laughs) 
All right, that's our show. Nerdcast is taking a break for the rest of this year. We'll be back in January 2021. Happy holidays. Our producer is Annie Rees. Our senior producer is Jenny Ament. Our executive producer is Irene Noguchi. Our illustrator is Bill Cookman. If you like our show, then like it. Leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. It helps more people find the show. And check out some of our other podcasts, Politico Dispatch, Politico Energy and Pulse Check, just to name a few. And we have a new podcast series from Politico, Global Translations. We'll talk to you again next year. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Hallelujah.